Don. Okay, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Today we'll be looking at two verses in particular, verses 4 and 5, so read with me. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this time. We thank you for this church. Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us each and every day to be able to live the lives that you would have us live. Father, we just pray now that our hearts would be open to your truth, that we'd be willing to receive it, and even more importantly, willing to live it. And we ask this morning that as I preach, that Jesus would be lifted up in this place. And that we would leave this place more willing to live and to die for him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Who knows the... Who likes chips here? Who knows chips from the packet? How many? Go on, confess. Because I'm, I'm, I'm a weakling and my weakness is chicken chips. Sorry, the Smith's ones. Um, I have a problem. I'm not going to confess it all to you now. I'll confess it to you sometime in private. Um, no, no, I, I love chips. Um, who's aware of the brand called McCoy's? McCoy's chips. You don't see them around very much, do you? But they're big in England. They're big in, uh, in Britain. And apparently they're the, the, third, um, the third biggest crisp makers over there. And you're, you're wondering where this is all going. What chips have to do with... Um, well, apparently in England, over 5 million packets are consumed every week of these, these particular crinkle-cut chips. And when they decided a number of years ago to work out the branding for this thing, you know, because they, they want to mark, you know, they, they have to come up with a slogan and they have to try to promote the product. When the people who in the marketing department got together and worked out what they would use, what slogan they would use, they, they looked at the name first and they thought, McCoy, McCoy. McCoy, that's a good Scottish name, isn't it? Um, yes. And so they, they thought about McCoy. They thought about there's an idiom called the real McCoy. Right? And they thought to themselves, oh, let's go with the real McCoy. Now, the, 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 the term the real McCoy, you've heard it all, haven't you? Do any of you know where it originates? Oh, no. I shouldn't have asked that question. Um, there is someone here. Anyway, there's... There are a number of there are a number of um, of alternatives. You can, sometimes they, they can they can go back and definitely know what the what the um, what the the foundation is of something. Well, one of the things they think of is there was a there was a product called McCoy or Elijah McCoy. Is that who you're thinking of? No, I'm not, I'm not going to go with the whiskey thing. I'll go with the uh, this other thing. <laughs> That <laughs> um, there was a there was a fellow called Elijah McCoy who developed a, an oil drip cup invention for the locomotives, right? And one of the theories of this particular idiom is that the railroad engineers, looking to avoid the inferior brands of this of this product, asked for that by name and said, "I want the real McCoy. I want McCoy's brand. I don't want the other rubbish imitations and all that sort of stuff." So anyway, the company decided to go with this particular idiom, the real McCoy, you know, McCoy's chips, the real McCoy, um, and then they added something at the end, except no imitations. Now, what does this have to do with, um, with um, the verses today? Well, if you, if you look at the verses, you'll pick up pretty quickly that Jesus today in these two verses is directing his disciples and us Two, consider the same thing. Don't accept imitations. Um, and the danger isn't the danger isn't just you know picking an inferior brand of chip, okay? That that might not taste as nice. When Jesus says don't accept imitations, what he's saying is if you accept the imitation, you could be forfeiting your own life. You could be forfeiting your eternal destiny because you've chosen an imitation rather than the real thing. 
So this is ultimately more important. This, um, this slogan, accept no imitation, is very, very important when it comes to who you choose to place your eternal destiny, in whose hands you place your eternal destiny in. Um, because there are many imitations. There are many promises that are made. And politicians love making promises, don't they? And they oftentimes aren't either unable to keep their promises because of circumstances or they aren't willing. Um, there are many religious systems in this world today that make many promises about finding peace and getting eternal life and, and finding the right path. But all of those, I was going to say most, but all, lead to destruction and are an imitation of the truth. You see, one thing the devil has learned to do very, very well over the past five or 6,000 years is he's learned to imitate. He takes something and he says, oh, okay, I can do something with that, and he copies it. And people fall for the copy rather than go for the original. So in a world that we live in today that embraces a philosophy that there's no absolute truth, that there is no one place you can find the truth, um, we have to be careful about um, what truth we, we take in, what truth we accept. Um, the world teaches us that all, especially religious truth, is what's called subjective and relative. Have you ever, ever heard of that before? They'll tell you that it doesn't really matter which religion you go with. It doesn't, tell you, it doesn't really matter which road you travel down as long as you're a good person, as long as you do good to other people and you generally live a good life and you don't harm anyone else. But we know that's a lie when we look at the Bible. We know that's not true. And I'll tell you why they say that. I'll tell you why or where that thinking comes from, where the world says to you, it doesn't really matter. It's because they don't believe it in the first place. So all the world cares about is you can do your little thing. You can do your little religious thing. As long as you don't influence, harm or, or try to win over anyone else. That's why Christians are, are not a very liked bunch. I don't know if you saw... Yesterday in the news, they had, a, um, they had a conference, a family conference. You see that in the news? I thought, that's amazing how it actually, it actually made the news. A few hundred people who want, who want to meet together on the other side of town, somewhere in a factory area, um, to talk about the importance of the family, um, abortion, um, and gay marriage. Their, their focus is they want to preserve marriage for what the Bible teaches, and they're primarily Christians. Now, the, the, the gay lobby and all these other people got together and they decided to pick at the front. And the news, the news were there as well. So you like that? It's like us we're having a meeting and then, and then a whole group of people are parading at the front, making noise, banging drums, and the media is there you know, taking, uh, taking interest in what's going on. It's because the world doesn't care about your faith. It doesn't care about it. As long as you don't push any buttons that, that get them to an uncomfortable position. They want you to be quiet. They want you to not share your faith. And when you do share your faith, they're not going to be happy about it. The world hates evangelical Christians. Understand that. They hate them. They hate them here and they'll hate them everywhere else because we, we are trying to win people for God. We are trying to, the, the, the truth we say we have is an absolute truth, is absolutely correct. And there is nowhere else we can find this truth other than the, the Word of God. So, when, so in our hearts, we want to share that truth with other people because it saves them from an eternity in hell. And, and, it, and it, it rescues them from their own sin. But when we do that because of love, understand the world doesn't see it that way. The world sees you're just trying to get more numbers for your cause and are trying to influence the government and other things. So, where the world says that it doesn't matter which religion you choose, as long as, as long as you're a good person, Jesus absolutely refutes it. Jesus says that that's an absolute lie and says that there is an absolute truth and the amazing thing is, is that he embodies it. And outside of him, you can't trust who you're going to follow. He is the, the source and the embodiment of all truths. 
So when it comes to finding your path to God, when it comes to determining which is the right way for you, please understand that Jesus does not give you any alternatives. He won't give an alternative. He won't say, listen, you can follow me, but look, if you, if you find that hard, you can actually, you know, go and follow someone else. And this guy's got teachings very similar to me. He does not give you any alternatives. He doesn't give you a choice. He does not share his importance with any other religious figure or any religious beliefs. Jesus warns all men that he and he alone is the genuine article, the real McCoy, the only redeemer and saviour of this world. And outside of him, there is no other saviour. That's a hard message for a lot of people to take. But it's the truth. That's why Jesus says in verse in verse in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So where the world teaches you that there are other teachers like Jesus who will do similar things for you, other saviors, other special individuals who can shed light upon your path. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 24, 4, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now let's look back last week. How do we find ourselves in this, in this passage today? It's because last week we commenced uh, at Matthew chapter 24, and it was a time when it was a time when the Jesus was teaching in the in the temple on a daily basis. And he would teach in the temple and he'd ridden into Jerusalem triumphant on that on the on the cult, and he was teaching daily in the temple, and in the evenings he'd retire with his disciples, and they'd go and sit on the Mount of Olives, and he'd go and teach them one-on-one the things that he thought was important for them to know. And as they were leaving the temple one day, the, one of his disciples, the Bible says, comes to him and says, Look, Master, look at all these incredible uh, you know, the buildings. And Jesus replies to him in a way that probably upset him a bit and says, see all these buildings, see all these magnificent stones, not one will be left on top of another. So the disciples were shocked a bit at that and they, they were probably talking amongst themselves until they got to the, the, the Man of Olives and then there the Bible says that a number of them went up to him and said, when is that going to happen? When will these things be? And when will be the sign of your return and the end of the world? And Jesus spends... The whole of chapter 24 of Matthew and 25 now answering their questions. And this is called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus warns his disciples here in these two verses that there will be many false or imitation Christs that will come into the world saying that they are he that they are the Messiah, that they hold the truth, that they are the way to life. And that they are, for example, Jesus who has been reincarnated, Jesus who has come back, and all that sort of stuff. You know, there are, there are, is anyone aware of some people who call themselves Christ at the moment, who are in the world? There's at least half a dozen of them floating around at the moment. Okay? And I know, I know particularly of... of um, there's one at least in the United States, one at least in South America, and one at least in Russia. And they have their disciples, and they have their followers, and they say that they are Jesus who has come back into the world. And the funny thing is that even in Jesus' days, there were those who were calling themselves Messiah. Jesus wasn't the only one who had disciples who followed him, but there were, at that particular time, men who said that they were the Messiah, who had followers, who, who, who attracted people, who had a charismatic uh, personality, although we don't hear about any of those guys this morning anymore. But there are dangers with being tempted to follow false teachers. There are two dangers, especially when it comes to Christians and Jews, and it involves the same error. And I want to share some of those errors with you so that you aren't um, fooled into some of the things that people say out there. And I want, you to help, I want to help you to understand the context of this particular passage because it makes all the difference when you understand it. Um, the Jews were especially 
at even now, susceptible to being fooled into following the wrong Christ. You see, the Jews are still waiting for their Messiah, aren't they? Okay. So they are susceptible to being fooled into believing that a particular man will be born into this world. Okay? Who'll be born of a woman. And they're looking for that person who will be born. So what the first danger um, that people get fooled or trapped in is that believing that the second coming of the Messiah, the second coming of Christ, will involve a birth. Do you get that? The first danger sign, the first lie, is that the second coming of Christ will involve a birth again. Jesus was already born of a woman, understand that. The second time the Bible says he returns, he's not going to be born again as a baby. And the Jews are in danger of being deceived by false Christ because they have rejected the one who has already been born of a woman. So they've left themselves open to being deceived when the Antichrist comes. The second danger is for those who don't know their Bible. The second big problem is for those who don't know the, the New Testament or know their Bible. And though that they may profess that they follow Christ, they may become deceived when a false Christ or an antichrist arrives on the scene and starts impressing them with some charismatic personality and talk and also signs and wonders, you see. There are enough people who call themselves Christians out there at the moment that if who would easily swallow a false Christ because they're more concerned about signs, wonders, miracles, tongues, healings and the like. And they will look to those things more because they don't know what their Bible says and they will be susceptible. Now, I'm not saying whether they're saved or whether they're not. What I'm simply saying is they don't know their Bible. So when they look at someone who's charismatic, who draws them because of their personality and their teaching and looks the part and plays the part and then starts performing miracles, they will easily be drawn into that. Now, I want you to understand something about antichrists. These... These individuals will are what are called antichrists. And by definition, it's not an antichrist is not someone who fights against. You know, you might think he's anti-something. It's not someone who fights against Christ. Rather, it is someone who's promoted and trying to be in the place of Christ. Trying to take his place. Turn to first John chapter two with me, and we'll have a look a bit more about this antichrist. Look what John says in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Now John tells us here, he says, Little children, it is the last time. Now you've heard, you've heard of the last days, okay? That wasn't the last days he was talking about. The last days are right at the end. This is the last time that John is talking about. As ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. So John is saying there is an Antichrist who will come. But he says, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that this is the last time. Okay, so understand something. There is an Antichrist who John is expecting will come. But even in his day, there were many Antichrists. Okay. These antichrists denied Jesus. They denied him as being the saviour, as being the Messiah who would come and either promoted themselves or promoted someone else. So John says they're antichrists because they rejected the Christ. Turn to, turn to verse 22 now. Just go a few, a few verses down. 1 John 2, 22. Look what John says here now. He says, Who is a liar? But he that denieth 
that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. So, by John's definition, an Antichrist is someone who denies Jesus Christ. Someone who denies that Jesus was the Messiah. Now understand, the term Messiah and the term Christ are the same. They mean the same thing. The Messiah was simply the chosen one is that Israel was, was waiting for. We call him Christ. Now, Jesus, when we say Jesus Christ, understand that Christ is not his surname. You know that, don't you? It's not a surname. It's his title. So Jesus is his name because they didn't have surnames in those days. How did they, how did they distinguish people, one people from the other, one person from the other? By their lineage. So they would say, Jesus, son of so-and-so. Okay? So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah. The one who was promised, the anointed one. So in, in John's day... Now, John was the Apostle John that we know, the one who lent on Jesus', uh, Jesus breast. He was one of the youngest uh, apostles or disciples. So he's saying in, in his day, there were plenty of antichrists going around. Why? Because they were denying that Jesus was the Christ, which made them antichrist. They were saying there was another alternative. And it might not have been around at that stage, or that person might not have been already walking around. They might have said, but he's not the Christ. I know the Christ is either here or is coming. That makes them antichrists. Now turn to 1 John chapter 4. Let's go a couple of chapters further. And John says here, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is this, that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now already is in the world. Now, oftentimes we look at this and, and Bible scholars look at it and they say... Oh, John's talking about you know that that the the Gnostics who were trying to infiltrate the early church didn't believe that the Messiah or the Christ could have come in the actual flesh that he was some sort of a spirit being. So most scholars say, oh, that's referring to John arguing against Gnosticism, but not necessarily, because John is simply saying the same thing over here. Anyone who denies that Jesus the Christ has already come in the flesh, is the Antichrist. Has already the spirit of Antichrist, and that's what that is. It's a spirit that is pervading, and the devil is doing everything he can to stop people from putting their faith in Jesus. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And John says it was already running around in his day, getting people to, to not believe so they would be eternally damned. But he says that there will come an Antichrist again. That's, that's the whole point of this thing as well. So understand that the spirit of Antichrist denies that Jesus is the Christ. It was present in John's day. It is present today. And there are many, he says here, false prophets that have gone out into the world and would go out later on who would deny that Jesus was the Messiah and that he hadn't come in the flesh and that Jesus of Nazareth was not the rightful Messiah. These false prophets. And a prophet is someone who simply is promoting someone else. Who's speaking on behalf of someone else. And the, the amazing thing is, is that in the end, it's not just the Antichrist who would come, but the prophet who also comes, the false prophet. Now there are many false prophets, and there is one false prophet. There are many antichrists and there is one antichrist. The Bible says there are many devils, but there is one devil. So as I've stated, the term antichrist should not 
be understood to mean against Christ because the term Christ is Messiah. What it means is that they're saying that there is another Christ other than Jesus, the Christ. Do you understand? It's quite simple. So let's go back to our, our two verses in Matthew. And it says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So as John has already told us, there is one Antichrist that shall come, but many were already running around the, running around the place. So what will be the distinguishing marks that will help people recognise the real Jesus when he returns, not the false one? So Alan shared something with me yesterday which, which I thought was quite interesting. I'm going to steal it from you. That's okay. <laughs> the thing about the jade. Um, we had a couple of hours together in the car. It was quite an interesting conversation on the way up and, and back. We Good iron sharpening iron. And... Alan said something interesting about um, about jade, and there was a, a young I can't put the Chinese accent on. I'm sorry, like the way Alan does. Um, and he said there was a, there was a, a master in jade who used to carve jade and work with jade, and he had a little apprentice, had a young apprentice, and all he would say day after day is, "Pick up the jade. Is it touch the jade? Feel the jade. All right." And so there were a couple of purposes for that, but. The, the, the point of it is, is that the, the apprentice would learn to feel jade and he'd, and, he'd, and, he'd, and he'd understand the jade by the touch. And then he'd know the jade so well after a while, because he got a bit fed up of just touch, pick up the jade, touch the jade, feel the jade, and then put it back down. He wanted to do stuff with the jade. But then there was a, a particular time when, when he picked up this jade, he went to, went to rub it and do whatever he had to do with it, and he goes, hang on, this doesn't feel right. And the master said to him at that stage, now you can start working on the jade. Because he recognised the false jade from the real jade. So to understand, to understand the false one, you need to really understand what is the true one first. Because if you don't understand the true one or the right one, how do you pick up is the false one that comes along? So in this particular case, what I'd like us to understand is we need to understand what the real Jesus looks like when he comes back. Because if we understand the real Jesus, then we'll pick up the false Jesus. And we can show other people and warn other people about the imitations that are out there and the imitations that will come. So what are the distinguishing marks that will help people recognise the real Jesus when he returns to the earth? The first one is how he will return. Okay, So the first distinguishing thing I want you to understand is how he returns to the earth. The first time Jesus came to this earth, the first time the Son of God visited this planet, okay, he was born. Now, I'm saying he wasn't here before. He visited from time to time. But the first time he came as the Messiah, he was born of a virgin, born in a stable. He was placed in a, uh, in a, in a feeding trough, essentially, and he grew up a very meek and humble life. When he comes back, though, he will come back in very, very different circumstances. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. How will Jesus return in the end? Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Luke is explaining what has happened or what will happen just before the, the day of Pentecost. And he's, and he's explaining what's happened after Jesus is resurrected. So Jesus has, has died on the cross. He's risen on the third day. And he's spending time with his disciples. And this is one of those times before the day of Pentecost. And look what it says. It says in verse 6, when they were therefore come, uh, were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day journey. Now, the event that we've just read about is called the Ascension of the Lord. It's when he ascends into heaven. So Jesus was resurrected from the grave, but at this particular point, it's when he says goodbye, everyone. The Holy Spirit's coming. Get ready for it. Hang around for a while. And, you, and you'll, be, you'll be endued with power on high. And that happened at Pentecost. You know, when they had the, the tongues of flame upon their head and they spoke in different languages. And he says, hang around here. But for me, I'm heading back to the Father. And literally, while there, he's got about 100, probably 100 men around him, 100 people around him. He literally, they see him do this. And he starts rising up from the ground and he disappears into the clouds. It would have been an absolutely extraordinary thing to see. That's called the ascension of the Lord. So, and then at that particular stage, two angels appear right next to them and say, what are you looking up for? The same way you saw him go up, he's going to come back down again. That's the way Jesus will return. He will return, not as a baby anymore. He's not going to be born of a virgin again. He's not going to be... He's not going to be uh, going through the same growth as he did when he first came. He will come again as a man next time. Now look at look at Acts chapter one verse eleven, which also said, "Ye men of Galilee." Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner. See that word like manner? It means the same way. As ye have seen him go into heaven. In other words, what we definitely do know in, at Jesus' second coming is that when Jesus returns, he shall descend from heaven the cloud, as the Bible teaches us. And he's going to descend the same way he ascended into heaven. The next important thing, so the first thing is how he will return. The next important thing is where he will return. Is he going to come in Australia? Will he land in America? Because Jehovah's Witnesses for a long time have built a home saying that Jesus has returned in America. I know. Where will Jesus come back? Now, look at where the disciples were at that particular point. It says in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1, it says, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So they were once again on the Mount of Olives, and they were returning. Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives at that particular point. Now, is there anywhere in the Bible that says where he'll come back? It actually does. Turn to Zechariah. Zechariah, probably I've pronounced it a little bit wrong. Zechariah chapter 14, one of the last books of the Bible. What, sorry, one of the last books of the Old Testament, sorry. Now, before we begin reading this passage, I want you to understand something. This is the Old Testament. The Old Testament. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Okay? Hundreds of years. And this is going to tell us something very interesting. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. 
and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, and when he, as when he fought in the day of battle. Now look at verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. So this is talking about the end. When Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of this world and they will enter into Jerusalem and cause a whole heap of problems over there. But at that stage, Jesus, the Bible says, will come back and he'll come back to the same place he actually rose from. Or ascended from. And that's the Mount of Olives. It says his feet are going to touch the ground on the Mount of Olives. And it says at that particular point, half of the mountain is going to be split one way. And half of the mountain is going to be split the other way. And there's going to be a huge valley in the middle. Probably a very scary time if you're, uh, if you're going to be there. So we know how Jesus will return. He will return as a man. He will return in full glory. When, uh, where will he return? He's going to return to the same place he actually ascended from. And what about when? Okay, let's have a look. Let's have a look at the setting. We're going back to Matthew. Go back to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at the period or the time in which Jesus is referring to when he's talking about these things. Matthew 24, verse 15. Let's look at a few extra verses or a few other places in chapter 24 so you understand what context Jesus is talking about when he says to the disciples, watch out for the Antichrist. Be careful, they're going to come and deceive many. Look what it says in verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. What's he talking? What's that talking about? Well, there are a few points we need to make about this particular verse. Firstly, the book of Daniel. See, he refers to spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Daniel the prophet was given a revelation of God through the angel Gabriel about the people of Israel. That was his. That was a message he had. And, and God gave this special um, this message or this prophecy to Daniel to, that told him about the, the end or the destiny of his own people, the Jews. And it says here, it says here that the abomination, when you shall therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whosoever read him, let him understand. This is the context. This is the time. When these things are going to happen. Turn to Daniel. Let's go back to Daniel. Let's see what Daniel says, says about that. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. We'll just look at one verse. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 says, says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Confusing? Yeah. Understand, there's a, lot of, there's a lot in that verse, but you have to dissect it. And we, we won't have so much time today to, to look at it. But let me give you uh, this, the, the message in a nutshell. 
See where it says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Okay, that he is the Antichrist. The Bible says that in the end, during a period that we call the tribulation period, it go, who knows how many years it goes for? It goes for seven years. Okay, Now, we're not in the tribulation period yet. The tribulation period comes right at the end. Okay, It's a seven-year period. At the beginning of the seven-year period, a particular individual... See how there's a lot of conflict in Israel now? How they're always fighting and the, the, they want to try and destroy them or whatever. Well, this person is going to come up in this world. Now, mind you, this is written thousands of years before. How did they even know that, that Israel was going to be a problem at this particular stage? Thousands of years later. So it says that this individual will rise up okay, and he will make an agreement with Israel and the world to bring peace to that region once and for all. And he's going to promise one thing in particular. He's going to promise Israel that they're allowed to rebuild their temple. There's no temple in Jerusalem at the moment. There's no temple. The, Is the Israelites, to help you understand, can't even follow their own religion, in a sense. Because their religion revolves around the temple. Without the temple... They can't make sacrifices. They can't do a whole lot of things that the Old Testament teaches. They're not allowed to. Because outside of a temple situation, they're not allowed to do that. So the Jews, many of the Orthodox Jews, are waiting for a day when they will be allowed to rebuild the temple. At the moment, there is what's called the Dome of the Rock around, floating around over there. And there's too much conflict going on. So this individual, when he comes along, and we won't know him, don't, you need to understand one thing. The church, if you are saved now, there, is, there will come a day when the Bible talks about that the church will be raptured. That rapture occurs before the tribulation. It may occur one day before, it may occur a week before, or a, or a month before, or whatever. But the church is taken out completely. Then God starts his program with the Jews again. And it's during that time at the beginning of those seven years, that this fellow comes along and, and does something absolutely extraordinary. He allows, he makes a covenant or an agreement with the Jews that lets them rebuild their temple again and start their sacrificial system all over again. And then he makes an agreement that he will protect them as well and he will bring peace to that, to that area. And the whole world is going to absolutely love him. Because no one up till now has been able to come up with any feasible plan to fix this problem up. The Palestinians are still going to be a problem. The, 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 um, the Arab nations around are still going to be a problem. The ones who don't like the, the, uh, the Muslim nations. And Israel is still going to be trying to defend itself and fight. Until this particular person comes along and says, don't worry Israel, we'll create this border around you in a sense. We'll let you rebuild your temple. And I'll protect you as well. At the beginning of the seven years, from the day that that agreement signed, the tribulation started. And that person is the Antichrist. Because what happens after that? See how it says, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week? Well, one week is what? Seven days. That represents seven years. And it says, and in the midst of the week, so halfway through those seven years, after three and a half years, he goes back on his promise. Now the Jews have built their temple. They've started sacrificing again. They've got the whole system up and running. He then, after three and a half years, walks into the temple and says, remove all this rubbish. I'm God. You need to worship me. You like that? From that point on, from the middle of what we call the tribulation period to the end, the last three and a half years, is what's called in the Bible the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is Israel. And we call it the Great Tribulation. Because in that time, it will be an absolute terrible time. He will go, that Antichrist will go absolutely, he will change, he will flip around his nature from one minute he's, he's, he's meant to be nice and, and everyone loves him. and every, He's going to, once he's got that power, he's going to stand in that temple. And it says there, see how it says that he causes, in the midst of the week, he causes a sacrifice 
so that Jews have got their sacrificial system going to cease. He says, stop this. You're not sacrificing that God anymore. And he sits himself down as God in the temple of God. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. In other words, he's going to destroy half of the Jews. The Jews aren't going to be happy at that stage. They are going to realize that they've accepted a counterfeit. They thought in their own minds that this might be the one. This person may be the one who's the Messiah who was to come. At the three and a half mark, when he declares himself to be God and he, everyone has to worship him, they realize, what have we done? So then, there's a change in Israel as well. And they realize that Jesus was the actual Messiah. And all the ones who then begin to resist him, he does away with. The Bible says that he beheads, cuts their heads off if they resist him at all. There'll be many who are going to die during the tribulation period. So this is occurring at the end. It's after this time, after the time of Jacob's trouble. So I've gone to three and a, first three and a half years, which are relatively peaceful. The second three and a half years, which are an absolute disaster. And then at the end, Jesus will return. And he returns to fight directly against the Antichrist and to do away with him. Turn to Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. I hope this is all making sense to you. <coughs> Revelation chapter 13. Now, we've gone from Daniel, which is the Old Testament, now to Revelation, which is right at the end, which tells us what the end will be like. And in Revelation chapter 13, it says here, and don't worry too much about the imagery, okay? But I'll, I'll explain to you the important part. And it says in verse 3, And I saw one of the heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. See the beast? That's the Antichrist. That's what John the Apostle calls the Antichrist. And they worshipped the dragon. The dragon is the devil, okay, which gave power unto the beast or the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Guess what? Three and a half years. Right? So he, had, he has power for three and a half years. And then it says in verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Jesus comes back to that. To this particular individual who's got power over almost all the world. He's got the world chasing after him that he's a, a fantastic leader. Ever seen those, those movies of Hitler with when he's got... The crowd's excited and he's got people marching and doing all sort of stuff. That's what it'll be like. Except on a much bigger scale. Except Hitler will look like a puppy dog next to this person. The coming of the Lord will be after a terrible time on the earth. When one individual will be worshipped by the vast majority of people in this world. And it says there the people wondered after him. They worshipped him. And once he takes up residence in that temple built by the Jews for God, he will declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped. At this point, the Jews will realise they've been betrayed and they'll begin to resist him. But he'll be too powerful for them. And they will have to flee. They will have to run away from, from this particular individual because he will kill and slaughter every one of them. Go back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 16. Now that you've understood that, we can look at a couple of other things and you'll understand how, how, this, how beautifully the Word of God all fits together. So Jesus has said, be careful of the Antichrist, or be careful of false Christ who will come in my name, saying that I am Christ. And look at it, it says in verse 16. Matthew 24, 16. Then let them which be in Judea, flee into the mountains. Get out of there. 
when this individual in that three and a half, that half year mark walks into that temple, like Daniel the, the prophet said before, and says, I'm God, Jesus says, get out of there as fast as you can. Don't hang around. Don't even wait. Get out because he will start to slaughter people. Look at verse 20. But pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Notice where, what the setting is. It's in Jerusalem. It's in Israel here. Jesus is talking specifically to a group of people who are there in the middle of all that. And he'll primarily be the ones who have turned to him after they realize they've been betrayed. Notice it says, those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Make sure, or I hope that your, your flight, you've heard of fight, fight or flight. Now, your fight is where you put up, a, you, you, you defend yourself, and flight is where you run, at, run as fast as you can. He's saying, hopefully your flight or your running will not be in the middle of winter, and hopefully it won't be on the Sabbath day. Well, who, who follows a Sabbath day? We don't. The Jews follow the Sabbath day. Who's he talking to here? The Jews. So now that we understand that the Lord is speaking specifically during a time in the future called the Tribulation Period, which centers around Jerusalem and the Jews that shall be living at that particular time. Now we know that these know these basic truths, how he will return. He will return from heaven in a cloud. Where he will return? He will return to Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. When will he return? He will return after this bloody period of the, of the Antichrist and he's and his, um, walking into the temple and, and causing all types of havoc. It's during the tribulation. Look at verse 23 of Matthew. Notice how Jesus says in that, he says, then, then. So now that you've taken all these things to account, then if any man shall say to you, lo, here is the Christ, or there, believe it not. Don't believe anyone who says to you that, that there is the Christ during those days. Look at verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. People are going to be doing miracles. People are going to be, going to be doing amazing things that are going to draw people to them. They're going to fool people. The Lord warns anyone that if anyone says that Christ is here or there or, or anywhere, don't believe them. Why? Because the Antichrist's motive is to kill people who follow Christ during that time. He says, don't believe them. Don't go out there. You know why? It'll be a trap. For false Christ shall rise up and false prophets as well, and they will perform miracles and wonders. And the miracles will be so impressive that even the Bible says the elect, the ones that God has already chosen. You know the 144,000 the Bible speaks about? God has chosen 144,000 men in the middle of that tribulation period to go and preach the gospel. And they will be Jewish men who will preach like, like the, imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls around the world. Starting off from there. But they will be persecuted by this Antichrist. Now why, why is it important that, that we understand it's the Jews? Why, is, why, why are the Jews susceptible to these miracles and things? Well, because the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians one twenty two that the Jews require a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now that's not just a, a flippant comment. Okay? It's not just something that, oh, the Greeks love, love wisdom and the Jews love, you know, love miracles. It's not that. Do you, know, do you understand why Jesus performed miracles? And some of you already know this because we, fought, we, we did it during our Wednesday night prayer meetings. Okay? 
The reason Jesus performed miracles was not to be good to the poor, was not to cleanse lepers. That wasn't the final, that wasn't the final reason he did it, although he showed who he was because of those things. He didn't walk on water just to make people say, oh, wow, look at that guy over there. He did miracles to authenticate who he was, that he was a prophet of God. And when the Jews saw those miracles, that was a sign to them. The Jews require a sign. That's because in the Old Testament, God said to them that if any prophet comes to you with a message, it must be authenticated with a sign. That was all the way back to Moses. So the Jews have always been waiting for any prophet that came along. He had to authenticate his message with a sign, with a miracle, with a wonder. So when Jesus came, he did more miracles than anyone else before him, and they still didn't believe him. Because the spirit of Antichrist was already running around in those days. So the, the Jews require a sign. So when the, when the Antichrist comes in the future and he starts performing miracles, they're going to be susceptible to, to him. Because for them, that will be an authentication that he is coming from God until it's too late. Look at verse 25 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Verse 27, For as a lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. The Lord will flash across the sky with his saints, defeat the armies of the devil, and land on the Mount of Olives. Now, I've told you where, when, how he's coming back. And these things are very clear in the Bible so that people aren't confused. There's one more thing I haven't told you about. The one almost most important feature that will distinguish the real article from the false. There is one very important feature which distinguishes the real Jesus from all the false ones. And they're the marks on his hands and his feet. Jesus took those marks with him into heaven. You know, say the only man-made thing in heaven. There's only one man-made thing in heaven. It's the marks on his hands and his feet and his side. The only man-made thing. And he chose to keep those. He had a choice. He could have healed himself. He could have closed up those wounds. He didn't. Turn me to Zechariah, chapter 12. I want to share with you what will happen when the people of this world see the real Jesus come back with those marks on his hands and his feet. Look at Zechariah chapter 12 verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Understand how terrible it will be for the Israelites in those days. How many thousands of years have they struggled? How many lives lost because they rejected the Saviour when he came? And when they see him come back, 
and he rescues them from the armies of the Antichrist, they will cry. When they see him with the marks in his hands and his feet, they will recognize him. They will know that he was the one who was crucified for them. But how much suffering, how much time lost if they had just accepted him when he came the first time. They will mourn, the Bible says, for him as one mourns for an only child. But we've not been called to mourn. The last thing we need to do is to lose time and regret the years that have passed. Where do you sit with all that? Will you look back at the end of your life, look back at your years and, and regret that you chose to live for yourself rather than for him? When you find yourself standing in front of his throne one day, whether it's by rapture or, or whatever, will you be happy? Will you be able to face him when you see those those marks in his hands and his feet, when you fully comprehend what he did for you, and then you arrive at his throne with absolutely nothing to show. I'm telling you, there will be tears in heaven. There will be mourning when we see how much time we've thrown away, when we realise how much we haven't lived for him when we realize in that day that we looked at what he gave us and everything that we have and we wasted it don't you don't have to turn with me here but I want to share something with you you know the, the apostle out of all the apostles when Jesus rose again from the grave. Jesus showed himself to all the apostles, but one didn't get to see him. It was Thomas. And even though he had all his buddies around him, they're all saying, we've seen him, we've seen him. He was saying, oh, no way I'm going to believe that until I see those marks on him. And it says that after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them finally. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. This morning, have you met your Saviour? Do you know him? Have you recognised him by the marks on his hands and his feet and his side? Because those marks are there for you. They were there for you. He did it all for you. Don't be unbelieving. And this morning he stands there. If you haven't accepted him as your saviour this morning, don't wait until, until it's too late. Because there will, come a, there will be a day when the church will be taken away and you may be left here and the tribulation will commence and it won't be a good time. And you may have to die for what you believe in. But will you believe? If you don't believe now, If you were to think about him right now, is there anything more important that demands more of your devotion, more of your time? Is there anything putting bef worth putting before him in your life? And if you, if you are, then just get rid of them. Put him first in everything you do. Don't put him second and third because there will come a day when you will be ashamed now, even now, he's a lamb. We keep these two pictures over here to remind us of something. That he, he still is like that. He came like that. And he still is like that. He still says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You can take all your burden. 
all the burden, all the sin that you have, and you can put it on that lamb. And he'll carry it. But it was coming that there will be a day when he will come back like that. And it will be too late. This morning, if you don't know him, if you haven't given this lamb your burden, you may face that. And I don't want it. And neither does he. So if you don't know him, please, please, come and speak to me this morning. Don't leave this room without committing your life to him and accepting the salvation that he's offering you. He stands there still with his arms open, ready to embrace you. Look at those marks on his hands and his feet, the hole in his side, and understand he did it for you. God bless you. Thank you.